Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about the forced obsolescence of modern hardware, the rumor that LGA is going away, and the rebirth of water cooling to the mainstream. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McCabe. We've talked about this before, but there really are only two good times to buy hardware. The holiday season and then right around CES when everything new comes out and the old stuff drops in price. So I've been shopping. What are you shopping for? <laughs> well, let me tell you a story. I have an old HP printer, a laser printer, a 5M. Gosh, could it be 20 years old? It could easily be 20 years Holy old. Holy cow. Anyway, I bought this thing new when I was working for HP back in the day. And I love it. It's a workhorse. It's not quiet. It's not energy efficient. It's not fast, but it's very dependable. You put toner in it, you put paper in it, it will print. Rock and roll. And I've got the upgraded network card in it, so it does everything I want to do. And then on the second side of the office, I've run a series of HP color printers. Those were pretty popular. Well, and kind of brand loyalty because I worked on those product lines for a while. So I'm very familiar with them, or was at the time. So PhotoSmart products especially. Anyway, my beautiful 900 series photo printer that I'd been milking for a while finally died on me about a year ago. That's actually not uncommon for those color printers of that generation, really. Yeah, so great product. Been around for a long time, and I just, you know, not only loved it from being a part of that project, but it worked great. So I bought a newer multifunction color inkjet PhotoSmart printer. This is like the all-in-one, right? Yeah, so about a year ago, mm-hmm. whatever the top-of-the-line PhotoSmart printer was, I think I paid 175 bucks or whatever. We printed, I think, I've looked at the firmware 36 times on that in the last year. And when I got it out about a month ago, it wouldn't print. So it just wouldn't do anything or it wouldn't? put ink on the paper or what so dennis i've been around a lot of printers in my life yeah and i never would have believed that you can make a printer cartridge expire just because it's reached the date on the cartridge it just like, never entered my head like an expiration date like on milk it's just like milk so i'm looking at these cartridges and i spent a lot of years working in the printer industry mm-hmm. and i can tell that they're basically full i can look at my firmware and i can see the printouts uh, yeah what was it 36 prints and i'm looking at these cartridges and it won't let me use them and it's date driven is that the, the synopsis here so <laughs> maybe this is common knowledge and i just didn't know because my printers have lasted so long i like to think that i can pay attention to that stuff but i just don't printers are printer when they work right mm-hmm. but this is true manufacturers now are chipping their cartridges so that they drop dead on expired date, whether you print or not. So what did I do? I went out and bought another set on eBay before I realized what was going on with the cartridges. And I bought, lo and behold, a set of refilled cartridges. And they weren't that expensive. I think I paid 36 bucks plus shipping for a full set. Stuck them in there, not realizing that these were refurbed cartridges and they need to be chipped. Otherwise, they also are in expired shells, Dennis. (laughs) Well, you mentioned something that I think is probably the driving factor behind that. 
and that's consumer refillable cartridges. Exactly. So I went out and I bought another printer, which is another story, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the state of the computer industry and this whole planned obsolescence. I bought this printer. I paid way more than I thought I would so that I would have that same experience I had with my 930 PhotoSmart printer and my LaserJet 5M, a workhorse printer that's going to last me maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, and all I have to do is occasionally buy ink for it. I mean, they don't have rollers and toner cartridges and transfer this and that and the other. And there's only really one consumable. And I printed very little because I do most of my printing in black and white on my trusty 5M. Now I'm into the thing, probably 250 bucks, still can't print. That's no good. So what did I do? Let I, me guess. Let me guess. Oh, oh. You bought a new printer. I bought a new printer. What did I do with the old one? I donated it. it's now a tax write-off somebody else can buy cartridges for it i just couldn't justify it so i finally i pulled the plug and i bought a color laser printer now i know that color laser printer cartridges can be chipped too but their life cycle is much longer i bought a business class well that's the smart way Mm -hmm. i bought a multi-function printer scanner print facts and i didn't buy an hp Uh uh-oh I know, and it sort of makes me feel guilty. I hope no one at HP is listening right now. I know, and I feel like I should be loyal, but I didn't. So I'll tell you, I bought a Canon. I bought an 8080CW, so it's not a really super expensive one. Hmm. You know, MSRP on it's 549 and I got an amazing deal on it that I will just let you wonder. But it does everything I want to do, and it is allowing me to unplug that 5M and stick it in my closet. I'm not going to get rid of it. Well, no. (laughs) I mean, truth be told, that 5M can sell for probably half of the original cost, even 20 years after. Yeah, and you know, I can get cartridges for it. The toner for 25, 30 bucks refilled, it doesn't know the difference. No. I get manufacturer recertifieds from HP for not much more than that, so I know I don't have a problem with my printer. Unlike modern printers, it's not very finicky. So I don't know what I'm paying price per page, which is the real thing about a printer that you can't get in advertising anymore. But I'm guessing it's probably like eight eight cents a print max. You know, that used to be a chunk on the HP website. I know chunks because I used to do the HP website for right. updating drivers and stuff. So the chunk is basically a, a piece of data. And one of them was the cost per page. Mm-hmm. That was actually something that the engineers had to metric and pass over to the marketing and now it's kind of gone so the canon printer to be honest wasn't my first choice mostly because its price per page is a little bit higher but it is a name brand carries a longer warranty and my second choice was a brother printer that's nearly identical they still make brother printers yeah and they do well because their consumables are cheaper and their cost is cheaper but in asking around Even my friends that are still in the industry are telling me that products are now designed with a planned obsolescence of between five and seven years, depending on the product line. Wow. That, well, that really follows the trend of kind of the U.S. market in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're consumers. You know, we go out and we just buy things. And when we're done, you can't fix them. Unlike you could 20 years ago, you can't fix them. So you throw them away, you go buy a new one. It's kind of like, I want to say it's the Apple effect. Oh, yeah. You know, pick up an iMac. Oh, I can't play games. Let's pick it up, throw it away, go to get another one. But, you know, you roll back 30, 40 years, you know, even to the the inception of IBM, 
what was it, uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. When Bill and the gang go and talk to IBM, they say, well, we would like to give you an operating system, but we would also like to be able to license it to other people. IBM say, hey, there's no problem. All the money is in the hardware. Back then, that really was the case because nobody else could do the hardware. And now everybody's kind of doing the hardware, so you have to figure out a way to get people to buy more of it and consume more and then kind of throw it away when you're done. And that's that whole captive market thing that's become so popular. The Google market, even Windows now has a Windows market so that they can keep your money in a controlled environment. And there are advantages. Apple's shown that. I mean, you don't get viruses. You don't get bad software. Nope. But you pay for the privilege. And to me, I just... Wow. Cartridges. Cartridges. Well, it makes you wonder. Well, we don't really wonder, but, you know, there was that whole, for a couple of years, everybody was advertising, let's refill your ink cartridges. We can, you know, bring it down, just jab it with a needle, fill it up with ink, and you can print again. That was chipping the cartridge is a natural progression to thwart that because that is how HP, Canon, and all these people make their money. They make it on the refillables. Right. You know, you buy the... You buy the game console, you buy the printer, they don't make money off of that. They're going to lose it. You know, it's been well documented that Microsoft lost money on the 360. They right. lost money on the original Xbox because mm -hmm. they wanted you to buy all the games. They can make money on the licensing for yep. the games. Once they capture you, then they make their money on the back end. That's true. And yep. that's not a big secret. Even HP has been pretty upfront with they take a loss on the printers and they make it up in the ink. Mm -hmm. But the real shocker to me was just the whole small amount of printing. I've done a little research, and to be honest, yes, I'm aware, and some of you may want to email or post in the forums, I can go out, and if I have the right kind of printer, I can buy chips, and I can replace them on the sides of my thing. I'm aware of that. And I can buy rechipped refurbs out on eBay or from a few sites, some of which I even trust. But it's the whole concept behind it. And truth be told is, even on my printer that I donated away, I read some gobbledygook, you know, left, right, left, right, up, down, BA, select, start thing where you can put new cartridges in and trick it into reusing your old cartridges. and Kind of like resetting the date. Yeah, but what? I mean, is it really gotten to the point where we no longer have to joke about just throwing your printer away and buying a new one? Black Friday showed that you could get color laser multifunction printers for under $60. I can't buy the cartridges for that. No, but they want you to have the device. And three years down the road, after you've printed 36 pages, they want you to buy new ink. 36 pages and two sets of ink. I hope the new owners like my printer. But at the moment, I'm really loving my 880CW. Recently, as of the time of this podcast recording, there was a rumor floating around about how Intel is moving away from LGA sockets. Oh, yeah. A leaked roadmap. And it's in Japanese, I believe, or Chinese or something. There are some characters on it. <laughs> but it's basically saying that any processor past Haswell doesn't have an LGA equivalent. And for those that know about LGA, that is the removable socket. Land grid array, if I remember correctly. Yep, that's what it stands for. And that is basically your 1155 currently and your 2011 processors. So in looking at the roadmap that was leaked, there's basically different timelines. So you have 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14. It goes out to 2014. And it down the left side is the socket type. 
So we have the LGA, which is going to be your Sandy Ridge Ivy Bridge in Haswell. And then in 2014, there's a Haswell with a circle in it with a question mark, which kind of means that Haswell was probably going to go to 2014, but it might get replaced. Who knows? Could be a die shrink or something as simple as that, too. Yeah, it could be. Now, below that, we have BGA and PGA, which is ball grid array, which is the same as like a atom processor. Well, the ball grid array is when the chips are directly soldered into place, which is really common on memory. It's common on memory. It's common on chipsets. Mm-hmm. It's common on GPUs. It's really what all the chips are doing nowadays, but it's cheap to do. You can mask off a board. You put the chip on there. You run it through the solder bath, bake it, and you're done. And you don't have to worry about bent pins, which is common with LGA sockets. You don't need to worry about pins bending over, which is like the socket 7 and even AMD nowadays. So it ensures that the board and the processor are going to work together and not be damaged. If I'm not mistaken, it also is cheaper to produce because you don't have to worry about those extra pieces and the extra material to make them work together. Yeah, and that's manufacturing cost. Now we go down, we have a BGA, PGA for the same basic processors, but Broadwell in 2014 is going to be the new processor that's going to use the BGA socket. And that's going to be in 2014, and it's listed as a two-core and a four-core. Now this is also important. On the map, all the processors are four-core, two-core. There's no mention of 6-core or 8-core or 10-core. So possibly a split for the server side or a different roadmap. Possibly. Down at the bottom, we have the Ultrabook, which is a BGA. And Ultrabooks are going to be like your small form factor tablets and your small form factor netbooks and stuff like that, your laptops. That's going to be integrated system boards, one board, drop it in a case, put a keyboard on it, call it good. Yeah, we're kind of used to that already in some of these things. And that's, you know, the Atom sort of approach to everything. But that really brings up the question of if Haswell is going to be the last generation that's going to use the LGA, what does that mean for the enthusiast market in terms of building your own computer? Well, clearly you can't just pop a processor out and upgrade. No. So say, for instance, you want to get the equivalent of a 3770K in this new BGA form factor. Right. So you have to go and determine what motherboard you want to buy, assuming that you can get enthusiast-level motherboards or even just mainstream boards. I hope so, yeah. So you pick your manufacturer. That manufacturer offers a certain level of processor. Maybe, you know, like the low-end guys like ECS or somebody like that has the Core i5 editions of the processor, whereas Asus and Gigabyte has the higher-end ones. So now you are buying brand loyalty because that's the type of processor you want. That might be cheap to manufacture, but what happens if your motherboard dies? Wow, I'm suddenly seeing some not cheap, because not only am I going to have to replace the whole shebang now, but I don't have the opportunity to change my mind. I can't buy a 3550 equivalent and then decide, oh, I really should upgrade to an enthusiast line processor now that they're cheaper, because I won't be able to. And there's also the question of the overclocker binning. Oh, that's true too. Yeah, you get what you get. Yeah, so at this point, you're buying, best case scenario, a $600 motherboard processor combo. Ooh, yeah, I didn't think of that. I mean, you're budgeting everything up front. There's no leapfrogging from one board with an old processor or 
whatever. I mean, you're you're committed. You are committed at that point, <laughs> and that's that is the thing that I don't like so much about this BGA form factor. But based on this roadmap, where we have two core and four core, that kind of leads me to believe that it's going to be the mainstream stuff. So we have Sandy Bridge and Ivy Bridge with integrated graphics. We have integrated PCI Express in there, so it really becomes a chipset. And chipsets have typically been soldered to the motherboard. So now the processors, processor is going to be soldered to the board, making it an all-in-one system for mainstream use. So that will be for people like Dell and HP to build their workstation systems that are just all-in-one iMac clones or whatever. Sure. Now we get into the four, six-core, eight-core, ten-core situations, which that is going to be your server market. It's going to be multiple processor market. It will be the workstation market. And I think that's also going to be the enthusiast market. So we'll have a very small amount of boards that are being manufactured for the different situations, multi-processor workstations and servers. And then we also have the enthusiast gamers and the high-end system builders. Oh, wow. They're going to be expensive. I don't think they'll be cheap. That's for sure. Right now, well, think about it right now. LGA 2011 is not cheap. That's true. If, if you want a 3930K, you're going to be spending 500 and some change. The motherboard for that is going to be 300 and some change. And that's for like one of the cheap ones. You know, you get into a UD7, which of course you can't buy now. That was like five and some change, I think. You know, the the, the ROG was almost 600 bucks true. for the Rampage 4. True. So there you're almost two grand into a processor and a motherboard combo and you still haven't bought memory. That in itself was one of the nice things about Sandy Bridge coming out and the fact that it overclocked so well because the hardware is considerably cheaper. You could buy a 3770K for $300, even cheaper if you get them on sale, and you could buy multiples of those, overclock and bend them. And as an enthusiast, that's something that I would want to do to get the maximum performance for benchmarks and you know my bragging rights. Right. Now, if that segment moves up into the, the price range of 2011, that's really going to narrow the focus even more to the people that just have really, really deep pockets and really want to show off or are sponsored by hardware manufacturers. That's true. Now, if we go the BGA route for mainstream systems that are considerably cheaper, you're committed to five or $600 for a board and processor combo. And maybe you can buy them separate and upgrade your system with that, or maybe that's going to be an all-in-one sort of situation. At that point, you are committed for that amount of money, and that board may not even support what you want to do. So overclocking on that particular platform is kind of dead. I mean, it's going to be like rooting your Android tablet to make it go a little bit faster. Well, that's not even taking into account the risk of burning up just a single piece of that package, and you have to replace the whole thing. You can't just blow a motherboard and go buy another one. Well, yeah, that's true. And... Nowadays, it's like you can fry a motherboard and the processor will be fine. There's a lot of checks in there that will prevent the surge from going and frying your video card and, and so on and so forth. I've seen where power supplies will go and fry the entire system and the processor still works, which is nice. Of course, if it's on a BGA, you're not going to get in there and unsolder the processor and go and buy a new board and <laughs> solder no, it back on. Not me. You know, when I built the, uh, the new server for... NinjaLane.com that's hosting it right now. That was a dual 775 system. One of the technicians that had the server before me did a processor upgrade and bent one of the pins in the socket, in the LJ socket. And that's 
really one of the problems of LGA is that, you know, the pins are pretty weak and you pull the processor out, put it back in a couple of times and, you know, you're just multiplying the chance that one of those pins will get damaged, right? which fries the entire board. You can't use it. Well, when I first got the server, I powered it up. It ran just fine. As long as I had it running, it worked perfect. But if I powered it down, it would not come back. And I was like, what the heck is wrong with this thing? I thought it was the power supply or something like that. I let it sit for a day. And that at that point, you know, capacitors are going to completely discharge. I can power it back up and it will run just fine. Ragged champ. As long as I didn't turn it off. I have a feeling that's why they took it out of the server rack. Because, you know, you can't have a reliable system if you can't reboot it. Well, pulled the processors out. Turned out one of the pins was bent. Pulled the board out. Bought a new board. Plugged it in. Used my same processors. Flashed the BIOS. I was fine. You know, if that was a server situation where we had a complete integrated system board, it would be cheaper to throw away the whole server than it is to just replace the board. So it's going to obsolete that server. So, you know, you're going to have a rack of, you know, 20 of them that are going to be running your your database farm or something like that. One of them goes dead. You're just going to pull it out, throw it away and get a new one. So what about AMD? AMD was pretty quick to come out and say that this is not our plan. They've been pretty animate about staying on the socket level. I mean, they really never went to LGA either. There was one processor generation that had an LGA socket, and it was only for servers. And all of the retail processors are still the pins. And if you bend one, you can go and take a paper clip and <laughs> crank it back. and or whatever's handy. And, you know, you still have a good processor. So maybe that's a good way AMD can differentiate itself by being more upgradable, more compatible, maybe? That might be the enthusiast solution coming, you know, in the near future. But we never really talked about the fact that the roadmap kind of has this big question mark for 2014. And as of this recording, that's two years in advance. So a lot can happen in two years. And it is a leak. So who knows how concrete it is, right? Yeah. And somebody might have faked it and just released it to see how many people would uh, pick up the story and speculate their own ideas, which... A little birdie kind of told me that was not necessarily the case, but some of the people within Intel are kind of laughing at the fact that people are making a big deal out of this. So wait a minute. If what you're saying there is true, then all this might just be an ugly rumor? Rumor might be the right word because, you know, this isn't the first time a roadmap has been leaked and then changed dramatically within a year. That's true. And you got to remember that sometimes these leaks are intentional. I mean, market reaction does drive product. And sometimes getting one of these out there is just one easy way to see what the competition's going to do and how the public reacts. I guess time will tell. Cooling is one of the driving motivators for enthusiast builds. Yes, that's true. And, you know, you get your high-end video card and slightly overclocked, it's going to come with a custom cooler, and that's one of the selling points. Now, that also translates into CPU cooling. You know, back in the day, we had the 60 millimeter Delta Screamers. You remember those <laughs> things, right? Yeah, you loud. Know. And that was the only kind of heat sink that you could get to cool your copper mines, you know, your P3s back then. They didn't produce a lot of heat, but they made a whole hell of a lot of noise. As cooling has matured, the heat sinks have started getting larger to the point where we have 120 mil, we have 120 millimeter case fans attached to our heat sinks and they cool amazingly but the new thing 
is re-emerging as an old DIY and is now becoming mainstream, which is water cooling. We have the self-contained water coolers, which were made famous by Coolit and now Corsair. And now there's even more companies out there doing this. That's true. And it's nice to see these coming back. I know for a while I used to preach against water cooling in general just because the portability aspect was not there. And if you didn't know what you were doing, boy, it was really easy to make a mistake. Well, when you're doing land parties and you're carrying your case around all the time, yeah, that really becomes a deciding factor. That's true. And, you know, for a while you could try to get water additives and all kinds of stuff, but it really just boiled down to just dangerous if you didn't know what you were doing. And you know what's kind of, I mentioned this in the previous podcast, I do a lot with water cooling, but I've never water cooled my main system. And that's partially because the equipment's expensive and I wanted to be able to use it on the test bench, but I wanted to have just kind of a standard air cooler, be reliable and know that it's running. Well, that's true. But some of these do-it-yourself kits these days have gotten pretty good. I mean, really easy to install and at least as good as some of these aftermarket towers. Right. Now, you have the Coolit Eliminator, right? I do. I've been a huge Coolit fan for a lot of years, and they're not as mainstream as I would like, so they don't have a lot of products out there. But what they do has been just phenomenal. And, of course, the Eliminator was the peak of the hybrid between the Peltier coolers and the water cooling. So it kind of did a little of everything. Yeah, you could dial in what water temperature you want to have, which really substitutes the ambient temperature of an air cooler Mm -hmm. to make sure that your processor stays at a certain temperature. Right, and I've tried the whole line of Coolit products in the past, and now they've kind of gone back to the more traditional all-in-one kit that you see in so many different places. I mean, everybody seems to have one now, and there's a good reason for that, because the technology is advanced to the point now where you can build these self-contained units, and they're very safe, they're very easy, and like I say, the performance, even for a cheap self-contained unit, is better than your OEM. So speaking of OEM coolers, you just put your new 3770 together, right? I did. I finally finished the build. We've talked a lot about it, and I probably will be talking a little bit more about the whole build. But I did go with a self-contained water cooler for the first time in really a long time. Do you mind saying which one you went with? I did. You know, we're big Cooler Master fans here around Ninja Lane. So I had the opportunity to put in their new 120 millimeter. I think it's called Sidon, S-E-I-D-O-N. Seedon, maybe? Yeah, well, here's a tip to the marketing folks. Um, make the name pronounceable. <laughs> I, uh, I always called it a Selden because I thought the I was an L. But regardless, it is a 120, mi- 120-millimeter self-contained water cooler that is designed by a German company that isn't Acetec, and it isn't Coolit. Interesting. And I didn't know that, but I do really like the product. Very easy to install. Really easy to install, actually. Yeah, it was four screws, and then you mount the radiator somewhere. Mm -hmm. There are a wide variety of radiator options, too. I could mount it a lot of different places. Now, the nice thing that, you know, because I got to use this cooler before you got a hold of it. Right. And then the thing I liked about it was the fact that you could put fans on both sides of the radiator, which is pretty typical of any of the self-contained water cooling units that you can buy. Mm -hmm. And it also has a light on the pump so that you know that it has power. Yeah, and it's not that intrusive. I mean, just a blue light, which is good because it makes absolutely no noise. 
No motion, no really anything but that blue light to tell me it's working. Well, and of course, the temperature. And, you know, if you have the side of the case on, you're not going to see that blue light unless you get in there and look. So where did you mount the radiator in this thing? Well, I've moved into the Thermaltake Overseer RX-1 case, which we reviewed on the site. And as you know, it's got a lot of space up at the top. Yeah, lots of space. So the top comes off and has room for a dual 120 uh, radiator kit. So my first thought was, since there's only one fan in the back 220 space, that I'd mount it in the front 220 space on top, run it through the space for the fans, and it would fit under there, and it does. But it's very difficult to mount a fan on it. The way the case is set up, I would have to put the radiator on the top, then you got the case wall, and then the fan underneath it, which requires two sets of mounting. The screws that it uses for that are threaded, so it's not just a pass-through for your normal fan screw. So that was my initial thought. Then I was like, well, I'll stick it on the back, and ironically, it doesn't fit. It's just enough long that the space between the slot risers, where you have the thumb screws, and the rear 120 exhaust fan doesn't allow me to mount it there. That's a design flaw, by the way, but it's a very small one. So I was like, well, I can mount it on the back, but that's kind of ugly. So I ended up mounting it actually underneath the rear 220 on the top. The 220 pulls enough air through this that I actually can get away with, under fairly good load, not mounting a fan directly to the radiator. It just has that 220 above it pulling the air through it. And even under load, I can keep that processor, which is only very lightly overclocked, which helps, at a pretty normal processor temperature. Now, uh, all that being said, I have plenty of cable and everything works out. And what's interesting, having not been on one of these for quite a while, is how much smaller the self-contained has gotten. The actual heatsink itself is... Oh, it's minuscule. They're really dinky. Yeah, it's not any bigger, really, than a single water block. The hoses are tiny, which really is the only thing about it that makes me nervous. But the radiator itself is pretty small. In fact, I was shocked that it didn't fit in the back. End result is great cooling and a huge open airflow through there that just gives me tons of space. Now, you talked about the size of the hoses on the sedent. I believe it's sedent. We're going to call it that. (laughs) Now, it's using the old Coolit-style hoses that has the the corrugated bits on it so that it won't kink. Yes. Now, we recently reviewed the Thermaltake Water 2.0, both the Pro and the Performer. This is the first self-contained water cooler that uses an actual rubber hose. Now, these are thicker wall so that's how they get away with the kinking aspect of it but i'm going to say that the inside diameter is slightly larger so it's going to flow a little bit better well it is a little misleading because you don't really need to move a ton of water but i just can't get over the fact that more water more flow equals more cooling and when you're doing a diy cooler where you got your half inch hoses and your big old pumps and water blocks and and whatnot that is where flow is going to have an impact on cooling. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I can't even begin to describe it yet. It's a confidence issue, really. I overclock infrequently, but I'm constantly overclocked. And there's not that motion. There's not that sensation. You can't see the liquid moving like you would in a DIY. So I just look at these little tiny hoses and I go, geez, I hope that is doing what it's supposed to do. (laughs) But it doesn't breed a lot of confidence. Well, If you need to have a confidence booster, 
the Corsair H60 is going to give you exactly that. Now, mm-hmm. this is an upgrade of the original H60 of the Hydro series, and it's using much larger hoses to connect the water block to the radiator. On the flip side, I tested the H60 against the H55, which is an Ace Tech design like the Water 2.0, and I didn't really see a benefit in having larger hoses there and in such a way that it had worse performance. Well, I think that it's a little bit misleading because really what it boils down to is how efficient the pump is and how good that water block is. The radiator, you can overcome a lot of deficiencies in a radiator with good fans, but if you're not moving the water, it's not going to matter. And so I think really when it boils down to it, the hoses aren't as important as that water flow. But boy, I tell you, they just look little. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the important part about the hoses in all reality is that you want them to be strong. You don't want you don't want them to leak. Unlike you know what was it? One of the early coolets, the hose would dry out and then it would crack and water would go everywhere. That's what you want to totally avoid in a self-contained water cooling unit, and that's why they've spent so much time and design effort making sure that those hoses. They don't leak, they don't seep, and that they will stay flexible for the entire lifetime of the cooler. And I don't want to give the wrong impression. The Cooler Master product is phenomenal. Clearly, I have a lot of options, and that's the one that's in my PC. So it's not really about the hoses. It's really about the performance level and, to some extent, the cost of entry. And in that case, there are a lot of really great options out there. Cooler Master is just one option, and it is great product for the money. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. To stay up to date on the latest at Ninjalane, please subscribe to our RSS, now available on iTunes, Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2012. Thanks for listening.